What is going on, guys? Welcome back to the 4th and 45 podcast. I am your host, the big JR, Jacob Richardson. College football week one is officially on the horizon. I know we've still got a couple of games to go. I will be covering those in the next episode, most specifically Notre Dame, Florida State. Uh, Like I said, I'm going to be covering that in next Sunday's episode because, honestly, I don't want to stay up that late covering that game. But, anyway, we had officially week one of college football we're going to be talking the game reactions for all of those we're going to be talking about where some players stand in their uh, particular award races we're going to be talking about maybe putting too much stock into some teams early with these preseason rankings and what this means for the rest of the season but before we get into that I want to talk about the biggest story going on in sports right now and it's not the Paralympics it's not anything to do with the actual college football games, but it has to do with a certain high school, or better yet, lack thereof, a high school. I'm talking about Bishop Sycamore. This is probably going to go down as one of the biggest scandals in all of sports. Bishop Sycamore was a high school that claimed to be out of Ohio. They claimed to be a part of uh, an Ohio high school league, And they played IMG Academy on ESPN. Now, IMG Academy is a legit high school in Florida. They produce thousands of D1 prospects. It's like a D1 puppy mill. And they played Bishop Sycamore, and they absolutely manhandled Bishop Sycamore. I I think they skunked them like 59 to nothing or something like that. And the whole time during this broadcast, the the broadcasters were really confused because Bishop Sycamore was a school that claimed to have multiple D1 prospects on their roster. And they they thought it was kind of weird for a, a team that had this that much talent, supposedly, was getting manhandled like they were. But, I mean, that's, that's not something that that's new. I mean, IMG Academy is obviously a very prestigious high school. We've seen them play other high schools before, and and manhandle them. So, I mean, honestly, to me, that was not something new. What was really strange was a player got hurt during the game, and they could not verify his roster number. They didn't have his roster number in the broadcast booth, so they couldn't even give a name for the player that was hurt. And all these D1 prospects that Bishop Sycamore was uh, claiming to have, they um, they couldn't verify any of that. So after the game, people started doing some digging. And folks, the amount of conspiracy, the amount of fraud that has come out of this is so big that I would say that it rivals the Black Sox scandal. I would say that it rivals the steroid scandal in baseball. And it also 
rivals deflate gate with Tom Brady. This is going to go down as quite possibly the biggest scandal in all of sports. It turns out that Bishop Sycamore is not a real high school. It is an online charter school that is a part of a Texas Christian League. And before they played IMG Academy, three days earlier, they had played Stow Rocks High School out of Pennsylvania, losing that game as well. And it also turns out that a lot of their players were adults. They were adults. They weren't real high school kids. They had no D1 prospects. And now, uh, they were scheduled to play Duncanville, uh, one of the one of the more prestigious high schools out of Texas. They were scheduled to play Duncanville. Duncanville backed out of that game. And all the other schools that had them scheduled has backed out now. Because they don't want to put their kids at risk. I mean, who would? You know, th- this isn't the longest yard where we're going to put, you know, a, a ragtag team against real athletes. Like, they're just not going to do that. And now, Coach Roy Johnson... Or Leroy Johnson, they call him Roy for short. That just sounds like a scam artist's name. Leroy Roy Johnson. Good lord. Sounds like a character out of Goodfellas. But he was fired. I don't know how you can get fired from a non-existent school, but he was fired. And now he has a warrant out for his arrest for fraud. What the, but the big question that I have is, how did this team get on ESPN in the first place? Like, like you would think that the most prominent sports network would do their research on a high school that they're going to televise. You would think that this would have came out earlier, but no. It, it has created a snowball effect that, that rivals a Mount Everest avalanche. It is insane all of the accusations and the conspiracy theories that have come out of this. I mean, this is just insane. But honestly, I don't want to talk about it anymore because the more we talk about it, the more it hangs around and the the more attention and the more, I'm not going to say credibility, but the more, um, the more... Oh, I can't think of the word right now, but but just the more prominent it becomes and the more attention that this this school gets that it doesn't really deserve. So we're going to move on from that. But it is quite a story that I, I would encourage you guys to look up. Moving on from that, another big thing is, is and we I, I talked about this a little bit uh, on last week's episode, but I'm going to go a little bit more in depth with it. The Big 12 Expansion. Now, as as I mentioned last week, Oklahoma and Texas have announced that they're moving to the SEC in 2025. Now, the Big 12 is trying to survive this. You know, they're losing their two big money programs. And so, the only legitimate way for them to survive would be to expand. And they have confirmed the expansion rumors. They are expected to send out invitations of expansion for four teams, that being Cincinnati, UCF, BYU, and Houston. Uh, Boise State and uh, I believe Memphis were also in those talks. Uh, SMU as well. That that was a school that was being uh, passed around. But as of right now, uh, they will send out invitations to UCF, Cincinnati, BYU, and Houston. And 
this this was a good week to kind of gauge where they would fit in with the Big 12. And honestly, I have to say, it brings hope. With the way that some of the Big 12 teams performed, we'll get a little bit more in-depth in that later. Um, but, you know, uh, every every team won their game with the exception of Houston. They played Texas Tech, but they only lost 38-21. to So... To say that these teams uh, could not only do well in the Big 12 and could not only compete well in the Big 12, I think that it brings hope for expansion. I think that it also adds a little bit more of marketability. Um, You know, Cincinnati being in in Ohio, UCF getting you into the Florida market, BYU getting you over into Utah, and of course Houston, you're bringing them up uh, with all the rest of the Texas schools. So there's a lot to be optimistic about there, uh, and there's a lot to make you think that, you know, hey, the Big 12 can survive with these schools, and also what you're bringing in for basketball. I know that's why Memphis was really thrown around because of what Penny Hardaway is building down there. That's why they were considered it would bring a lot of stock into the Big 12 basketball scene with Kansas and Baylor, West Virginia, Oklahoma State. You know, it, it adds it adds a lot of... Uh, it adds a lot of great matchups. And also, you know, with, with Cincinnati and the season that they're having and with how a lot of the games played out uh, Saturday, Cincinnati's going to be a top, uh, a, a really high-ranked top 10. Could maybe break into the top five. I highly doubt that, but it could happen. Uh, we'll see how the voting shapes out. Uh, I, think it, I, I think the rankings come out either Monday or Tuesday. But it will be interesting to see where they where they fall in with the hierarchy there. And, you know, Houston with Dana Holgerson, uh, they, they're always a scrappy bunch. Houston's actually been a really, really good program throughout the years. I think bringing Dana back into the Big 12, should he stick around uh, after this season, I think that it will bring somewhat of a competitive edge to Houston, and it also opening opens up uh, all those teams recruiting uh, recruiting pipelines, uh, you know, they can start recruiting a little bit more. It expands borders. It expands horizons. Uh, UCF has been one of the top, one of the top group of five programs in the nation for the last couple of years. BYU has always been a, a prestigious program. They've produced Heisman winners. They've produced Steve Young, Jim McMahon. Uh, they won a national championship a while back. And I, when I say a while back, I don't mean like 2000. I mean a while back. I think like in the 60s or the 70s. But you're adding a prestigious program. So, like I said, there's a lot to be optimistic about for the Big 12 to survive with these four programs. And they could join as soon as next season. Of course, Oklahoma and Texas have come out saying they don't want that because that it's it's kind of a power play. This is, this is a power struggle right now between the Big 12 and OU and Texas. OU and Texas, if they leave in 2025, they wouldn't have to pay, they wouldn't have to pay out money. But if they leave sooner than that, they they'd have to pay the Big Twelve a substantial amount of money, and they're obviously they're trying to avoid that. That's just the economics of college football for you. But uh, honestly, you know, the, the, if if I'm the Big Twelve, if I'm Bob Bolsby, I'm looking at OU and Texas, and I'm saying, hey, put your money where your mouth is. You know, you want to leave. We'll give you the opportunity to leave, but you're not gonna you're not gonna leave. Uh, without giving us something in return. So, I think if you're OU in Texas, yeah, put your money where your mouth is. You know, you, you, you've you been saying for years that you can be competitive in the SEC. Well, go prove it. 
you know, put up the money, go join, and we'll see what happens. And honestly, with how OU and Texas performed in week one, it's a little questionable. It's a little questionable to say whether they would have success in the Big 12 or not. And that that takes us into our game reactions, but I'm not I'm not going to start with OU and Texas. I'm going to I'm going to start with Minnesota and Ohio State. This was a really really good game. Uh, it was a good game to kick off on week 1. Uh, but there are some things that I want to kind of dissect about this game. So Ohio State obviously won that game. They took down the Gophers 45-31. And it was a really competitive back-and-forth game. Um, you know, typical Big Ten game. Often They started kind of slow. And then both teams seemed to find the rhythm the later the game got going on. But eventually, the talent level of Ohio State, you know, overtook Minnesota. Now, here, here's what I want to take from that game. So, Minnesota... They're good, but they still need to take that next step. They're still they're still a young program. You know, P.J. Fleck uh, is in his third or fourth year, I believe. You know, so he's still somewhat early into coaching Power 5 and specifically coaching in the Big Ten. And whenever you're coaching a program like Minnesota that doesn't necessarily have the, the prestige that an Ohio State or that a Michigan or a Michigan State has and, and doesn't have that, that success factor in there, it, it's a little bit of a challenge. But there's a lot to be optimistic about if you're a Minnesota Gophers fan. Um, you know, they, they looked really competitive. Uh, unfortunately, they lost their running back. Uh, Ibrahim looked to be probably an Achilles injury. So he he's probably going to be out for the rest of the season. Um, but, you know... There's there's a lot to be optimistic about. Tanner Morgan looked incredible. He looked incredible against that defense. Um, you know, uh, and and that begs the question: is, is Tanner Morgan one of the top NFL prospects to look at this year? Uh, honestly, I think he is. I think he, I think he showed really great poise. I think he made some big plays that kept him in the ball game. But again, eventually, you're playing against Ohio State, and that talent factor just kind of, just kind of uh, got to him a little bit. Um, you know, he, he finished with a really good day. He was 14-25, 205 yards passing and a, and a touchdown. So, I mean, really, really good. Really, really good. I mean, one could say that he played outplayed C.J. Stroud, but it wasn't by much. You know, uh, if, if you are going to say he outplayed C.J. Stroud, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't by much. C.J. Stroud had a really good day in his debut. Started off kind of touchy. Started off kind of touchy. But once he kind of settled down, once they made those halftime adjustments, you really start, you really started to see, you know, his talent. You really started to see how good of a quarterback he is going to be. And you know, he he had a really good day. He was thirteen of twenty two, two hundred ninety four yards, and, and four touchdowns. He did have that one interception, but he's a young quarterback making his first start. It's okay. He just needs to kind of settle in, get used to the system, get in that rhythm and flow a little bit, and he'll be fine. Uh, Buckeye fans. You've got a good one, and and he'll continue to improve. He he missed some throws, but again, he's young. That's just what happens whenever you have a young, new, green quarterback. He's going to miss some throws. But the good thing is, is he had Chris Olave. Now, Chris Olave, as of right now, the Bolitnikoff, I know it's week one, but the Bolitnikoff is his to lose. He was making plays that 
you know, you, you only really saw out of the likes of like a Justin Blackman or a Ryan Broyles, a C.D. Lamb, uh, a D.D. Westbrook the, for all my Big 12 OU OSU guys. Uh, that, that's kind of the comparison. You know, he, he, he just has that it factor that, you know, we saw out of Devontae Smith last season or out of Jerry Judy, Jalen Waddell, those guys from Alabama. He, he really looked crisp. You know, he, he's an experienced guy. He's a veteran. And he's just talented. He just has a knack for finding the end zone. Uh, you know, so uh, Chris Olave, Bolitnikoff front runner. Uh, Mario Williams had a really good day running. He had 125 yards off of nine carries and a touchdown. And so this Ohio, and, and then that defense for Ohio State is a really, really good defense. Uh, as I said last week, nobody's, I don't have anybody stopping them in the Big Ten. So, Ohio State, and they're definitely going to jump up in the rankings. I expect to see them at, at number three, maybe number two, if it's not Georgia. But Ohio State looks to be like the real deal. Ryan Day, congratulations, my friend. You have a team down there in Columbus, as you always do. Now, the only really, the only real bad thing I had about this game, I mean, I, I was unbiased. I really didn't care. Obviously, you always want to see an upset. But... At the end of the day, it really doesn't matter for me who wins. I I, I had Ohio State winning this game anyway, but uh, the the question that I that I came out of this game with, and the only thing that really made me upset, is targeting. I don't know what these college refs did during the off season, but they did not brush up on their skills. They did not brush up on college football rules. I think they went out and they vacationed and went on a you know, however long bender in Hawaii, because that's what it looks like. There was a play, uh, Latham, the cornerbacker safety or whatever he is for Ohio state made a hit on a Minnesota receiver and there was head to head contact. I don't care what anybody says. You look at that. There's obvious head to head contact. And for years now, the NCAA has had a problem with this targeting rule. They cannot figure it out. And for anybody that's saying that wasn't targeting, I want to remind you of something. In the college football playoff last year, James Skalski, a linebacker for Clemson, made a hit on Justin Fields that was ruled targeting. Skalski hit Fields in the midsection with his head, and he was ejected from the game, and Clemson went on to lose that game. Now, if you go back and you watch that hit, Skalski's hit on Fields, and then you watch Latham's hit on the Minnesota receiver, please tell me, how Skalski's hit is targeting, and that is not. Okay, the NCAA needs to figure this out. And here's what the NCAA defines as targeting. Obviously, we know that targeting is any malicious intent contact with, with the head or neck area of a defenseless player. But we cannot figure out what a defenseless player is, and we seem to not be able to figure out what in the hell head-to-head contact is. Now, this is what the NCAA defines as targeting. Is there a launch? Now, Latham's hit. Yes, there was a launch. There, there was a launch. He obviously went to hit the guy. Number two, it was he leading with his helmet, shoulder, forearm, fist, hand, or elbow with forcible contact at the head or neck area? Yes, he was. That's, that checks boxes one or two. And then number three, lowering the head before attacking by initiating the forcible contact with the crown of the helmet. Yes, he was. That was targeting. 
he should have been ejected. Minnesota, and, and they ruled it as a fumble. They ruled it as a catch fumble. Now, when it comes to fumbling, yes, it was a fumble, but whenever there is targeting on a fumble, it negates that fumble. Targeting overrules the fumble call. It actually negates any turnover call. So if there was an interception, if there was a fumble, whatever, what have you, targeting negates that. And the team that loses position keeps possession and they get the penalty. And that's that's what I'm going to say. If James Skalski's hit on Justin Fields in the college football playoff last year was targeting, then Latham's hit on that Minnesota receiver was targeting as well. The NCAA, you need to fucking figure this shit out. It is bullshit. Kids are going to get hurt. There's a reason why parents are continuously pulling their kids out of football is because they don't want to see hits like that. Skalski's hit was a form tackle. If you're going to show me both videos, Latham's hit and Skalski's hit, I'm going to look at you and I'm going to say Skalski was form tackling, Latham was targeting. And a kid does not go down the way that Minnesota player went down if he hits him in the shoulder. Okay, that kid looked comatose. Like, he looked dead after he got hit. Thankfully, he was okay. He was able to get up, walk off on his own power. But that's targeting. That is that is to the letter what targeting is. The NCAA needs to figure out what the hell targeting is. Because we can't seem to figure it out. They've had, and this, this was not a good week for NCAA refs. This made them look incompetent. This made them look stupid. And it made them look like they need to go back down to Pee Wee to freshen up. That is ridiculous. The The atrociousness of refing in college football is absolutely atrocious. And I'm going to get more into it. But I want to move on. Because then I'm going to rant for the whole hour that I'm on here. And you guys just aren't going to be very well entertained. So my thing that I took from Ohio State. You just got to fix the minor stuff. Obviously that's what week one's for. You got to fix the minor stuff and then you'll be okay. The machine will keep chugging along. As it has been. Then we move on to the next prominent game, which is UNC Virginia Tech. I, I hate being wrong sometimes, folks, but when I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and I will admit it. I put way too much stock in this North Carolina team. I said that they were going to beat Clemson. I said that Sam Howell was the second best. You could argue that he was the he was number one in the quarterback rankings for college football. I was wrong. <laughs> Virginia Tech took down number 10 UNC in Blacksburg by a score of 17 to 10. Virginia Tech came to play, folks. You know, uh, Justin Fuente had that group ready to go. Uh, Sam Howell did not have a good night. He went 17 to 32. He had a two. He had 208 yards, only one touchdown to three interceptions. Wow. That, that is not a good performance for a guy who a lot of people were saying was in the Heisman conversation this year. Not a good debut. Burmeister from Virginia Tech absolutely outplayed him. He went 12 of 19 for 169 yards, a touchdown, and one interception. Um, yeah, I put way too much stock in UNC, and I, I can sit here, hang my head in shame, and say that I was wrong. Now, is it a season-ending loss? No, obviously. It, you know, the old adage is it's better to lose early than it is late. So, and, and you know, a, a saying that I like to say is a win will always show you how good a team is, but a loss will show you what a team is made of. So the question for UNC, can you 
fix what was wrong. Obviously, they had a really slow start. And whenever you had a slow start, that equaled bad finish for them. Sam Howell didn't, never looked like he got into a rhythm. He never did. He was running for his life the whole game. Uh, UNC, you got to fix that O-line issue if you want to be competitive in the ACC this year. You can't have Sam Howell picking turf out of his face mask after every play. So, the O-line, big issue for UNC. But to give them some credit, they were facing a very, very good defense in Virginia Tech. I think Virginia Tech, outside of Clemson, may have the best defense in the ACC. I think Virginia Tech is probably going to be the dark horse out of the ACC this year. Um, but yeah, put way too much stock in UNC, and it bit me in the ass. So, you know, but you know, a lot to be optimistic about if if you're still if, still for UNC. You know, you're still a good ball team. Uh, not real much. Con- other than that, not a whole lot of competition in the ACC other than Clemson. Uh, you know, so I mean, you got that game out of the way. It, it it's. But the question is, is will it come back to bite them? You know, what kind of season is Virginia Tech going to have? I think if they play every game the way they played UNC, they're going to have a really good season. But, you know, we'll see. But let's talk about that environment in Blacksburg. Oh, my gosh, how we missed fans in college football. That inner Sandman is n- unlike anything else that I've seen in college football. It is it, That stadium was electric. It was rocking. You know, they they were ready to be back as much as the players, if not more than the players. That environment down in Vicksburg is, is in, or Blacksburg, I'm sorry, is incredible. And I would hate to be an opposing team going into that environment. But moving on from that, uh, let's talk about Oklahoma and Tulane. This was a game that had upset alert written all over it. A lot of people thought that, you know, Tulane was going to lay down for Oklahoma. They were not. They came ready to play, and they almost pulled off a great upset had it not been for an atrocious, atrocious, atrocious officiating call. We don't know what pass interference is. Just like we don't know what targeting is in college football, we don't know what pass interference is. Late in the game, Spencer Rattler threw what looked to be his third pick of the game, after throwing two, one on the second play of scrimmage, looked what what looked to be like his third interception, and then and then it gets ruled pass interference on Tulane, which was ridiculous. That defensive back got slammed to the ground by Hazelwood. That was not pass interference in any right. This was Big Twelve. This, this was officials protecting a blue blood, as it always is. That's that's. Always what happens, you know. But, thankfully, OU held on and avoided a big upset. This was a really bad performance by OU, especially on the defense. On the defensive side, you cannot allow a team like Tulane to march up and down the field on you. And you cannot allow a quarterback like Pratt did to, to go 27-44, to 296 yards, and throw three touchdowns. You just can't have that if you're a college football playoff contender. And if that's the performance we can expect from Oklahoma, if they do make the college football playoff, pray for them. Because if that's the performance they're going to put up against a team like Tulane, as the number two team in the country, they're not going to be number two. I told you they weren't going to be number two. They're going to drop after this. Georgia and Ohio State both are going to overtake them, and they'll be lucky to be number four. 
depending on how low they want to drop Clemson after their loss to Georgia. But, you know, come on. Come on, OU. You, you, you've been building this defense up. You've been building this team up. You've been talking about national. this is the national championship year. you got to prove it. And having a performance like that against Tulane isn't enough to get the job done. You've got to fix that defense. That defense has been atrocious for years. And if you want to do what you claim you can do, you've got to fix that defense. Got to fix that defense. Because if not, teams like Alabama, Clemson, Ohio State, Georgia, Texas A&M, they will eat you alive. They will eat you alive. Your, your offense is really good. You have a national championship winning offense, but you do not have a national championship winning defense. You've got to be able to stop the bleeding. So come on, OU. You, you want to you wanna go play with the big boys in the SEC? You can't go into the SEC with a defense like that because they will murder you. And for Spencer Rattler, you got to shake off the nerves. Got to shake off the nerves. We've seen this from, we saw this from Rattler last season. He started out really slow, and then he started to catch his stride. You can't have that this season. You had a grace period last season because you were a new quarterback in a new system. You were fresh. Now you've, you're experienced. You can't be having these slow starts like you did. You can't be throwing an interception on the second play of scrimmage. That's rookie stuff. You're a veteran now. Play like a veteran. So the question becomes, is OU good enough for that number two ranking? Right now, no, they're not. And I think a lot of OU fans would agree with me. They're not good enough to be ranked number two. Are they good enough to be ranked number four? Are they good enough to stay in the top five? Yes, yes, they are. They are They are good enough. But are they good enough for number two? Are they good enough to be giving all that national championship hype to? Not right now. Not right now. And But how about Tulane? Tulane came ready to play. They they were a scrappy bunch. They were on their way to winning. Unfortunately, that's not the way it worked. But this is a team that we're we're looking at an eight nine win team if they keep if they keep up the if they play the way they played against Oklahoma, we're really good team to watch out for in the American Conference. So a nice performance there from Tulane. Uh, in terms of you know what what they were coming in against, you know nobody had really high expectations for this game. A lot of people thought it was going to be a blowout, but a really really good effort from Tulane that just unfortunately didn't go their way. And now we move on to Alabama and Miami. Not much to dissect from this game. You know, Bama gonna Bama. Uh, this was a typical game that we see from Nick Saban crew year in year out. They go play a highly ranked team and they just absolutely monster them. Not much to fix from from the Alabama standpoint. You know, Bama just going Bama. They're going to keep rolling. They don't rebuild. They retool. And Bryce Young, a little bit better than advertised. He, he's a really good quarterback. Probably going to be in the Heisman conversation this year. Incredibly good effort from Nick Saban's crew. Disappointing effort from Miami, but you're playing Alabama. So, I mean... You can't really judge a team based on a blowout loss to Alabama because, again, Bama gone Bama. And then let's move on to uh, Texas, Louisiana. I'm going to get to Georgia Clemson, but I'm saving that. You know, that was kind of the main event for last for last night, so we're, we're going to cover that one last. Uh, Texas, Louisiana. Houston, uh, Hudson Card made his debut for the Longhorns. Steve Sarkeesian made his debut for the Longhorns. And it was a winning effort down there in Austin for uh for Steve Sarkeesian. Got his feet wet in the Big 12. 
and it worked out for them. They took down Louisiana 38 to 18. Uh, Bijan Robinson had a day. He was 103 yards on 20 carries and a touchdown. Hudson Card, really, really good debut. Uh, 14 of 21, 224 yards, two touchdowns. Really good effort here from Texas. Uh, you know, this this was a this was a team that was on upset alert. Yeah, a lot of people were picking Louisiana to win this game, and I think Texas uh, over-delivered a little bit. So, really, really good effort there from the Longhorns. And then, uh, then we move on to uh, Oklahoma State, Missouri State. Now, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on a rant here for a little bit. Oklahoma State fans, you need to relax a little bit. You need to take a step back. You need to breathe. This was a team that was without Spencer Sanders. That was without Trace Ford. We're going to be without Trace Ford this year. He tours ACL again in practice, so Trace Ford's done for the season. But no Spencer Sanders, no Trace Ford, no uh, no uh, Blaine Green. I think we were out. We were without Blaine Green. Bryson Green stepped up. Uh, so we're, we were without uh, a lot of players in terms of COVID protocol. Shane Ellingworth looked all right. He looked okay. He didn't look jump off the page good, but he looked good. He he did what he was supposed to do. He manned the ship. You know, he made the throws count when he needed to. Tay Martin, big play Tay. He's looking like the the number one receiver we need him to look like. Brennan Presley was making some plays. Uh, you know, so somewhat of a good effort there from the Cowboys, but that's not the score you need to have whenever you're against Missouri State. A team like Missouri State, you should mop them 40 to nothing. Now, the defense, the defense looked amazing. The defense is still good. The defense is still legit. Malcolm Rodriguez had a day. He he, he was really good. Uh, Kobe Harvell-Pills, Trey Sterling, they're still dogs that we that we knew they were. Christian Holmes, Corey Black, they, or Jarrett Bernard, they looked really good in coverage. The, the defensive front, still good. They're going to be without their big anchor, Trace Ford, but they're going to be okay. They still have Colin Oliver. They still have Tyler Irby. Sony Aussie, they they still have guys that they can rotate in there and and be okay with. Now the offensive line, however, was bad. Now again, we were out of, we were without a lot of offensive guys, a lot of our experienced guys, so we were rotating in fresh uh, fresh guys, guys that were greener than baby shit into that O line. So that's why the O line didn't look that good. I think whenever we play Boise State and whenever we play Tulsa and we get all of our guys back, I think you'll see a lot better performance. A lot better performance. But whenever you're without guys, it's it's real hard to really do what you want to do in terms of game plan. you got to kind of keep it simple so people aren't getting confused and you're not getting unnecessary penalties like offsides and, you know, subbing too many guys out or guys are out of position. So, you know, you, you had to be a little bit conservative there. But at the same time, got to have a better performance. Got to have a better performance. Uh, other than that, you know, Florida had a really good game against FAU. In terms of the top 25, Texas A&M did their thing against Kent State, 41-10. Washington uh, got upset by Montana, 13-7. TCU, <coughs> excuse me, had a good day against Duquesne, 45-3. And then we move on to LSU-UCLA. UCLA is the dark horse in the Pac-12. Right now, they're looking like the front runners. <coughs> Excuse me, they're looking like the team that is going to challenge Oregon in the Pac-12 this year. Dorian Thompson-Robinson had a really good day. He was 9 of 16, 260 yards, three touchdowns and an interception, as opposed to Johnson for LSU, who was 26 of 46, 
330 yards, three touchdowns, and an interception himself. Zach Charbonnet for LSU had 11, or UCLA, I'm sorry, had 11 carries, 117 yards, and a touchdown. Dulcich, the receiver for UCLA, had three receptions, 117 yards, and a touchdown. UCLA was firing on all cylinders. They were looking like a team that has found a rhythm, and they're going to stay in that rhythm for the rest of the season. Uh, probably going to be one lost team, two lost team, depending on how the ball falls, wherever they play Oregon. But really, really good day for UCLA. Uh, LSU, it's it's back to the drawing board. You know, kind of a disappointing day, but ultimately, you know, uh, that's just college football. You know, you win some, you lose some. Back to the drawing board, get ready for next week. And then we go into Georgia and Clemson. This was the the main event of the evening, and in my opinion, it kind of under-delivered. Kind of under-delivered. There wasn't an offensive touchdown the entire game. And there was a lot of hype surrounding DJ Uwangali, uh, Justin Ross, JT Daniels, and that Georgia offense. And it, it really underdelivered. But it was a really good game if you're a defensive guy. <clears throat> defensive guy, excuse me. This game had slobber knocker all over it. You know, this was a gritty, tough, knock em out, drag em out, who's going to break first kind of game. This was old school football at its finest. You know, neither defense was really given an edge. The only touchdown that Georgia had scored was off of a pick six. So this was a really, really, this was a defensive chess match, and ultimately Georgia came out on top. Georgia's defense is legit, folks. This is a defense that is built to do one thing and one thing only, and that is beat Alabama. And we will see how real they are once the SEC schedule comes into play. But I think this is a team that is worthy of a number two, number three ranking. They came into the game number five. They took down the number three team. So I think that this is a team that that everybody's going to be in the conversation of, this team's going to beat Alabama. This is going to be the team to do it. This is the the time for Kirby Smart to get over that hump and take down Saban's crew. And JT Daniels, his draft stock is going to go up a little bit higher. Now that he took down Clemson, if he continues to play well, Towards the in the SEC, his draft stocks are going to rise. Uh, DJ Uwangali, unfortunately, uh, you know, didn't have a great day. Uh, but you know, freshman, he's fresh, he's new, he's or not a freshman, but he's he's still kind of trying to find his rhythm. He's trying to find that chemistry. He's trying to find that ebb and flow for Clemson. Honestly, Clemson, this is not a setback. You're still fine. You lost to a team that is designed to build, but to beat Bama. This is not a big deal. So now you just refocus, re-zero in, fig- fix the stuff, kind of get that offense rolling a little bit more. Your defense was really, really good. Unfortunately, the ball just didn't roll your way. And that's really all you have to kind of take from that game. This was a really, really good defensive matchup. Both defenses came to play. The offenses needed to need to kind of find their niche, kind of find their click, kind of, ah, kind of find their rhythm a little bit, and they'll be fine. And after that, we'll be okay. And that's all I've got for today, guys. Like I said, I will be covering Notre Dame, Florida State next week because the game is on a Sunday and I release the episodes on a Sunday. I'm going to cover games that are played on Sundays, Mondays in next week's episode. But thanks for tuning in, guys. Be sure to come back next Sunday. And as always, 
Thank you. Have a blessed day.